Hey, it's Charlie. Thanks for listening to the Encouragers United podcast. The following is a short sermon clip from a message that I recently preached at Walnut Creek Mennonite Church in beautiful Holmes County, Ohio. For more information about the church and our ministry, please feel free to search for us on Facebook or Instagram, or go to our website, wcmenn.org. If you remember last week, we welcomed the children. Don't hinder them. Bring them to Jesus. In fact, the parents of those children were the primary characters in doing the right thing. Well, and what do you know, chapter 20 leads off with another mother bringing her sons to Jesus. If we pick it up in chapter 20, verse 20, that's exactly what we see. A mother. A mother. The mother of Zebedee's sons. James and John, by the way. They're disciples of Jesus, remember. They, she came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Why not? Some of you know the story here. What is it? He asked. What is it that you want? I could preach the whole message just in that question right there. Isn't that proverbial? Isn't that rhetorical? Isn't that powerful? What is it that you want, Mom? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You see, James and John and the other two, the other gospel of Mark primarily, James and John bring this request, but I think all three of them probably came. And in the witness testimony between Mark and Matthew going through this, Either way, James and John make a pretty powerful request to Jesus to be prominent, to have authority, to have honor in the kingdom of God, to be great. Because you see, traditionally, it was very powerful for a person to sit on the right side of the king or the left side of the king in their kingdom. Remember our study in Esther. Think of Haman and King Xerxes. You see, but I think it's so difficult to to justify, to rationalize what she's asked. Given the previous verses that I would now not want to preach, I can't, but just look back at verse 17, 18, and 19. And I'll let you just read that carefully to yourself. You see, Jesus in those verses has spoken about the ultimate sacrifice that he will make. They are headed to Jerusalem. He will be turned over to the scribes and the Pharisees. He will be punished by the government. And he will be killed. It's a little out of place, don't you think? Oh, Jesus, can I, can I have my son sit at your right and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? Now, the question is whether she heard him say this or not. And that's what commentators sometimes argue about. Maybe she didn't realize that it was a little off color. It was a little out of place. Right after he says this, to be asking such a big request. You see, many commentators believe that they still believe that Jesus would establish an earthly kingdom that he was going to kick out the Roman government and free Jerusalem and reestablish the temple and set up himself as the rightful king like David. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, probably put their mother up to it. That's another inclination that we have. They still wanted the status, even though Jesus had been teaching that greatness would come at a great cost. And that leads me to teach you, to admonish you, to, to, to beg you today to guard your hearts. 
Because we have to be very cautious of our own sinful natures, don't we? It's always right there, the proverbial devil on our shoulder, whispering into our ears. We must be very cautious and always be watching, guarding. We too can desire this status in the world. How quickly the worldly greatness captures us. Oh Lord, I want to be great. The lust for the spotlight, the, the, the wanting to be heard. It's a very difficult drive to stop within ourselves. And there is only one way to stop that desire. And I believe it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Say to these two sons of mine, one will sit at your right hand and one will sit at your left. Make it happen, Lord. How many times we come to church and we bow and we have a request. And Jesus looks us in the face and says, what is it that you want? We have that motive in our mind, don't we? You want something? Well, of course, Lord. That's, this is what I want. I want to be great. I want to be great, Lord. I want to be on your right hand or your left hand. Do you realize that the phrase on your right hand and on your left hand is only used one other time in the book of Matthew? Do you know where I'm going? Who was on his right hand? And who was on his left hand? A criminal was on his right hand. And a thief was on his left hand, crucified alongside him. And so that leads Jesus. Yes, Matthew 27 records the two rebels, the two criminals who were placed at his right and his left. What a paradox we observe. You want to be great? But Jesus uses that as a correction, doesn't he? He uses it. Look at verse 22. He takes a, he takes a stern uh, look at them. He says, you don't have... You don't even know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, he says. They, they said, we can. Really? Really? Think about that dynamic. They've walked with him. They've talked with him. They've watched him. They know his heart. But it appears as if they've completely missed the point. Right? And how often we walk in the same shoes. You don't even know what you're asking. Are you sure that you can drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they say, yep, we sure can. It alludes us back to the Easter messages, right? When Peter says, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to stand with you forever, Lord. All these other chumps, they may fall away, but not me. Oh, my goodness, Peter. You're going to deny me three times, he says. But Jesus uses this opportunity. He takes it as a teachable moment, as the brilliant master teacher that he is. And he teaches us. That the path to greatness includes suffering. This metaphor of the cup. I want you to think about that with me for a moment. The Bible, it's a, it's a very complex metaphor. It's filled with multiple meanings, as you can imagine. And in general, the cup can represent fate or suffering or even blessing. The blessing of salvation is sometimes re referred to as a cup. It represents an experience. It's an experience before us that we drink. Drinking is a, is a weird bodily function, isn't it? You're taking something in and you're swallowing it. You're drinking it in. We experience it. We take it in. And Jesus tells these two overambitious disciple brothers that they really don't know what they are asking for. Are they ready to suffer like Jesus has explained that he will in order to achieve that request that they want? So James and John would indeed become martyrs 
for their faith. You see, in verse 23, we, we see the, the, uh, the continued teaching that Jesus says. He says, yeah, you're, you're indeed going to drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from. But to sit at my right or left hand, that's not for me to decide. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. Wow. Now, there's a whole line of reasoning in biblical commentary. Scholars sometimes believe that, no, 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 wait a minute now. Let's, let's give these guys a little bit of grace. Maybe their ambition was uh, revealed. They did know what was going to happen. They said, oh, no, we're going right to the end with you, Jesus, and because of that, I want to be on your right and your left. Some would propose that. But the one little nugget in this passage that trips that theory up is how the other disciples responded to them. Did you catch it? In the verse, the other disciples find out that they made this request. And how did they respond? <laughs> Wait a minute. Hold on a second. What does it say? They were disgruntled. They were indignant. And maybe they were indignant because they didn't have the idea to go ask for it. I don't know. But I'm teaching you this morning that it was probably selfish ambition. You see, because King Herod would arrest some belonging to the church of Christ later. And he intended to persecute them, to crush them. And we read about that in Acts 12. Here's Acts 12. It was about that time, or this time, that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. And he, he had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. You see, in this critical time of the, the forming of the church, after Jesus was ascended, yeah, James, you will indeed drink the same cup as Jesus and became a martyr. And the apostle John, his brother, he was banished for his faith to become a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. We read that in Revelation right in the first part of his book, right? He's writing the letter. It says, I, John, your brother and a companion in the suffering, in the kingdom, and patient endurance that others that, that is ours in Jesus. He, did he get it? Oh, I think he got it. He got the point. Here's what he writes. I'm a brother and companion in the suffering that we have because of our faith in Jesus. I was on the island of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Our Lord tells James and John that the thrones of the kingdom of God are not for his to grant. Fair enough. And in other words, whoever sits upon these thrones has already been determined by God Himself. We read in verse 24 what I was alluding to before. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant. The disciples seemed to be angry at James and John for attempting to cut them off, to cut into the front of the line, so to speak, on when Jesus was somehow handing out honor. The sad reality is that all of the disciples were probably still envisioning power and having daydreams about the high authority that Jesus would provide them in the kingdom, even after all Jesus had been teaching them. But like I said, the ten heard about it, they were indignant, and Jesus takes advantage of this powerful moment. You know, there's disgruntled nature within the camp. These guys are fighting with each other over stupid stuff, right? And he says, hold on, let me teach you something. Pick it up with me in verse 25. Jesus calls them together. I love it. Come on, huddle up. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Here's what he's describing. Do you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the worldly leaders, 
lord it over them. Lord it over them. That's what he uses, the phrase, lord it over them. And the translation literally from the Greek is to lean on them. So come here, Will. He's pretty strong. Lord it over them. Now, if, if, if my brother was, well, if he was dressed properly, I'd hop on his back because that's really what it means. To lord it over is to lean on them. We lean on that person. Okay? Thank you, Will. Thank you. And that's my authority. I'm expressing my authority over Will. I lean on him. Maybe I give him the elbow. And Jesus uses that as the example to say, you realize that's what happens in the world. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what happens in the world. And they exercise, they exercise that, uh, that authority by leaning on them. They, they lord it over them. They stand upon the shoulders of those below them. And that's greatness in the world. Oh, isn't that just great? And we see it all over the, we see it all over the world. This lording it over. The lording it over of people. The lording it over of the land. The lording it over of business. The lording it over of, 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 of almost every system that's, that's in the world. It's, it's permeated with this virus of authority and power and, and a thirst and our sinful selfishness. You see what I'm getting at? Because in the world's way, power and influence are used for selfish advancement. I gotta take care of me and mine. I worked for 22 years in the sports world. And I have to admit that as a Christian, a faithful follower of Jesus who loves sport and wants so desperately to see the, the, the symbols and the, 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 the workings of our faith played out in sport, that was my job, that was my life, that was my love. I can't stand professional sports because it's all about me. i got to take care of me. It's about the name on the back of the jersey, not the one on the front. You see what I'm getting at? Now, that's a dramatic example. Not all professional athletes are like that. But in today's world, power, influence, athletic endeavors, the, 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 the expression of my skill set, the, the expression of my authority, my power, my intellect, everything is for me. In my kingdom, the advancement of what I want and what I can get. Oh, it's powerful, isn't it? It's a powerful contrast that Jesus says, you know that's what's going on in the world. Yeah. And they're all probably looking at each other going, no. So? Not so with you. Not so with you. That's not what we're talking about, guys. You got it all wrong. You don't even understand what you're asking for. The great, great, wonderful musician Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song, Wake Up and See the Glory. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And the line in that story, and the line in that song, that beautiful piece of art, he says, I'm sitting in the Grand Canyon eating candies. I'm eating candies sitting at a gourmet feast. I'm sitting in the Grand Canyon playing my Game Boy. What a beautiful contrast in the picture. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you is going to be the servant. And whoever wants to be first is going to be like a slave. And so there we have it, the description of greatness in Jesus' kingdom. You see, he turns that selfish ambition completely upside down, doesn't he? No, you're going to be measured by your servanthood. You're going to be measured by the people that you love. That the, that the gaps that you stand in. And if you want to be first, 
you're going to be last. It is such a beautiful, beautiful picture. Not so with you. We are different. We are God's chosen and holy people set aside for His purposes. Not so with you. Not so with you. I think Jesus is pretty clear. Because he says, just as the Son of Man, just as the man that you love and see right before you, right here today, just as I have come, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come to lean on people. I came to serve. I came to be leaned upon. And I give my life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom of God, those who assume the lowest status are the greatest. The last shall be first. This truth applies to everyone for all times for who are followers of Jesus. Our discipleship is dependent upon it. Jesus tells us we must be servants. And Jesus is obviously that greatest example of our servant leadership in action. I love the word ransom. Ransom. It's the Greek word lutron. L-U-T-R-O-N. Lutron. It is simply defined as the price demanded to free a slave. That's it. Lutron. The price demanded to free a slave. And this word is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it happens to be Mark's version of this very interaction. I present my body as a ransom, as the price that is going to be demanded to free mankind from its sickness. That sickness, that virus, And Jesus came indeed, whether you believe it or not, to meet your deepest need, which is to be free of that selfish ambition, to be free of that selfish sin inside us. It's holding you captive. It's held us captive since Genesis 3. The desire to be God. We weren't satisfied to just be like God. We wanted to be God. I want to be great. Jesus is the ransom. Oh, it's such a powerful, here it is, Lutron, the The price demanded to free a slave. There's a very powerful passage that I want you all to commit to your memories if you haven't. uh, At least the reference to this, it's Philippians 2. The Apostle Paul reflects upon this whole concept of Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, God in the flesh, the Word become flesh. And he writes this, Philippians 2, all you got to do, just remember Philippians 2, right? The, the idea of Jesus' incarnation, to become like us, it says in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He doesn't lord it over us. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking on the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. What a powerful, powerful passage. And that's it. That's what we cling to. That the God of heaven became a man. Oh, i got to share with you a piece of history I discovered this week. It's so beautiful. It's so rich. There was a author and a theologian, pastor, John Flavel. And he wrote a wonderful prose called The Father's Bargain. The Father's Bargain. I didn't put it on the slides. I just want you to sit and rest in this. It has a little bit of Shakespearean English to it, so just hang on. It's written in the 1650s. 
And here you may suppose the father to say when driving his bargain with the son. Okay? Follow? It's an interaction between the father and the son. We have two persons of the Trinity interacting with each other. The father begins, My son, there is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the internal ruin of their souls. What shall be done for these souls? And thus the Son speaks. Oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for these that rather than they should perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father responds, Oh, but my Son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatement from me. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing of me, though it impoverish all of my riches, all of my treasures, yet I will be content to undertake it. Wow. Wow. Do we truly understand what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up here. We're going to have a, a Charlie Grimes, Pastor Charlie dramatic ending, as if that wasn't enough. An evangelist preacher was once confronted by a young college-age student in the open air on the college square. And the young man just simply asked, how could one man suffering for a few hours on some cross in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago, somehow pay for my sins and the sins of these multitudes of souls that you speak of, sir. Sit down, my boy. That's what the, the evangelist preacher starts with. How, you might ask? How? Well, let me tell you how. Because this one man is more valuable than all of us combined. You want to know how. You must realize that there is absolutely every possibility that He saves our souls because you could put all of creation, all of the cosmos, the sun, the planets, the stars, the beauty of the world and the universe in the side of a scale. And He would, out, he would outweigh it. everything that sings or gives life, place it on that scale. And he outweighs it. This one man outweighs everything. And he gave it all for you and me. This is the one we chased after. This is the one we desire. He's the whole fulfillment of God's promises to us. 
why we built our foundation in 1862 on this corner to be God-ordained. A God-ordained ministry from the heavens above by the Father and to be centered on Christ. The expression of God's love. The expression of everything in this world. And we do it today by seeking Him through the Spirit's power. We are God-ordained. We are Christ-centered. And we are Spirit-led. Amen? And so Christ be magnified today in us. Amen and amen. This is the one we chase after. He's greater than all of us combined. And you want to be great? Stand in that gap for somebody today. You want to be great? Serve them. You want to be great? Become a son. Take off your outer garment. Put on that towel and bend down to wash someone's feet. That's what he did for us. That's what he did for us. And he says, simply, I leave you a new command. This is it. It's John 13. Some of the last few words that Jesus spoke before he stood in the gap for you and me. I give you a new command. Don't lean on everybody else. Love as I have loved you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Encouragers United podcast. We hope you're inspired and motivated by today's show. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would ask that you'd consider uh, sharing it with someone that you might know who would appreciate it, subscribing to the podcast so you would never miss another episode, and even supporting us financially through a monthly sponsorship. Your support will help us to continue to share uplifting stories, Bible teaching, and encouragement for listeners to never give up on encouraging and investing in other people in positive ways. We look forward to bringing you more episodes of the Encouragers United podcast. And until next time, start where you are, take what you have, and do what you can.